how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Mikhail Chivetta got his start making commercials and shorts. This taught him the balance of creativity and commerce while also teaching him technical background to eventually move into features. His first project, Agony, the movie focused on psychological uncertainty within past traumas. His newest film, The Gateway, a social worker assigned to care for the daughter of a single mother, intervenes when the dad returns from prison and involves the family in his life of crime. In this interview, the director talks about his love for 70s cinema, where characters belong in terms of TV versus film, the dangers of compartmentalizing stories and characters, the pros and cons of shooting too much or too little, and how to show your point of view on screen. You know, I, I kind of got obsessed with, with movies when I was 15. I saw a couple things like Paz the Glory and started watching some Fellini stuff. And... Uh, you know, I never really thought of it as something that people actually told stories. Like I, I thought there was things you would see on the screen, you know? Um, so I felt like, damn, like I, I kind of see the world in that way. So I feel like maybe that's something I should figure out learning how to do. What's been kind of like your experience, like the last couple of years, you've made a couple of shorts before you kind of got into like feature filmmaking. How did that help you like progress in your career and get to the features? Well, I, I mean, over the years, I, I cut my teeth on commercials and videos. So I probably shot about 40, 50 of both of those, you know. So I, I would say, you know, filmmaking is really a fine balance of art and commerce in the sense you, you always have to be aware of your time limitations, how much you have that you can actually apply towards. And, you know, somebody's always paying for the underlying product. So you, you got to be aware of what that balance is in terms of creating. And certainly all the commercials, uh, you know, was a great technical kind of background just to figure out you know what uh, it involves both like working with crews and different departments and the equipment and and interfacing with actors you know you see i see you've got a couple of films out uh in the last couple of years do you have a certain genre that you gravitate towards or what makes it a good story worth writing or directing uh, i think 
you know, ultimately uh, what I look for is uh, what I can relate to in the story, kind of uh, irregardless of, of genre in the sense like some of my favorite filmmakers, uh, specifically here in, in the States, I, I don't think get pinned down by genre, like someone like Robert Altman comes to mind. And, um, you know, certainly the ability to, to express the story you want to tell or what is uniquely human, regardless of genre, I, I feel like is what fascinates me, to be honest, you know? Tell me kind of the story behind your, your first movie, Agony. How did that come to be? Where did that idea come from? Well, I was living over in Italy at that time, actually. I, I was married for about six, seven years. And I have always been a big fan of, of the psychological thriller, like specifically like Polanski's The Tenant, uh, some elements out of the Jalo stuff. And, you know, going back you know, even to like Hitchcock's Rebecca, uh, but just the uh, the psychological uncertainty of like what, what, you know, Freud calls uncanny. And, you know, I think with agony, it was kind of, uh, it came to me in, in a series of dreams actually, but just the idea of, you know, what ancestry is and how that might affect someone as, you know, they're arguably losing their minds and coming to grips with their own past traumas and what, what uh, they call uh, uh, rep- replication theory that almost like you're, you're doomed to like play out, traumas that you've had uh in your life or your family's life until you solve them what do you say how do you kind of describe your movies so like agony and gateway do you look to movies of the 60s and 70s that are more like character based is it harder to make those movies today uh yeah 100 percent. i mean look i i think a lot of great work comes out these days but you know there's no denying in my book that the 70s 60s and maybe parts of the 80s are the golden era of, of at least American cinema at this point. Um, you know, I, I, I was born in the mid 70s, so I can't say it was my time period, but I have a theory that somehow your zeitgeist, like that which you're attuned to, is many times the generation prior or the decade before. You know, so it's kind of like these kids nowadays who are growing up and they love wearing their, their mom's old clothes, like which they call normcore. Um, and they love Nirvana and, you know, like, look, th- those are now bands that are 25 years in, in the, in the past to them, but that's many times like where youth culture comes from. So I, I think in many ways, like, I don't know, you channel those ideas somehow. And, and so in, in creating certainly it's been a, a big touching point, just kind of in terms of understanding a lot of the music I love comes from that period. All of those stories today are kind of going more towards television or miniseries. Was Gateway always meant to be a movie? Uh, did you prefer movies over TV or how do you kind of see the future of your career, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question, Brock, because I think with this one, it, it definitely you know, was written and conceived as a standalone film. There is probably an analogous world that there's the TV version of this because there's enough characters and there's enough backstories that you know, I, I, I would think are interested interesting to discover. Uh, Moving forward, I I think we live in an amazing moment in the sense that you have the ability to articulate ideas not only in two hours, it could be six hours, it could be 10 hours, and it can play out, you know, as is correct for the the product or the the idea. So like, I I loved Steve McQueen's Small Axe last year, which Amazon did. And that, you know, one episode was an hour and a half standalone movie. One was an hour, another is an hour 20. um, that, that's very much so the space that I, I'm interested to kind of jump towards and moving forward. So normally like a social worker as a character is like almost always like a side character. It's rarely kind of a lead. Um, are yeah. you looking at things from different angles or where did this idea come from for Gateway? I, you know, what's, I thought it was cool about the 
components in the story. I mean, it, it's no different than your standard cops and robber kind of flick. You know, it's like a, a genre piece. But I think the clever spin on it really is the fact that the guy who's leading you through this is a social worker, you know, who's innately somebody who uh, we apply value as saying, oh, that's, you know, a community hero or somebody who's, who's good, kind of like the way we look at firefighters and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, with that, there's a real complex uh, morality to him as well that, you know, <laughs> you might have more in common, not quite as bad with like Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant than, you know, some of the other cops we see on screen and stuff. So. How do you kind of balance these characters? Like, do you see every character? Obviously, it's not as clean as white hats and black hats like it was long, long time ago. But is every character <laughs> is every character gray? Do you see that? Well, if this character is this way, they should kind of be the opposite of this character. Like, how do you see the balance of your characters? Uh, you, you hit on something that's like real vital that, that I've been talking about in these days. Like, I, I think in storytelling, a great danger is to fit things into compartments. Say, you know, uh, it's black, it's white, this guy's good, this guy's bad. Uh, it's all enmeshed in gray. And I, I think that is the area where it gets to be much more interesting in terms of both morals and understanding like the drive and the humanistic quality of someone. And I, I think that's where truth comes from. That's what our, our real lives are like. That's like what, what our neighbors and our friends are like. You know, nobody's entirely good and entirely bad. And if they're bad, they still believe they're doing good in their own head. So, you know, with, with, with that said, it, it's, it's, it's kind of what's paradoxical, I guess, in, in making judgment calls about people. But, you know, you can't just have a bad guy be only bad. Otherwise, what's the point of watching it? You're not going to be interested, you know? So you got a really great cast in this new movie as well. How did you go about kind of pitching that? Because you are, uh, you got a long career, but you're kind of like, it's your second feature film. It might be hard to get yeah. some of these names, but you got them. Like, what were some of those conversations like? How did all this kind of come to be? Yeah, I mean, it, it's never easy casting a film. I think it, it gets probably a little easier, you know, as you do more and more. So we, I got real lucky in the sense that we were able to get Shea Wiggum on board early on. And he and I had a bunch of real great conversations. And I, I believe it set the tone of the kind of piece it was because he's really like the ultimate inside actor's actor. And so I think, you know, when other people see he's doing something, uh, they, they know it's going to be coming from, you know, someplace really integral and from the gut. And from there, I mean, we really were able to branch out and I was super fortunate to get Olivia Munn involved next. And, you know, it just kind of started to calibrate as a, a tonal thing. Like it, it seemed like as we were building this family of characters uh, that, you know, more, it became a conversation more and more people got excited to, to just be involved and be working with each other, you know? And so what's kind of, do you talk about themes with some of these actors? Like what, what is the additional thing that might people, people might not think of as far as getting someone on board? Like, are you talking about, how do you kind of connect with them in the best way, I guess? Uh, I, I mean, themes definitely matter. I mean, I think the underlying material, the scripts, you know, obviously is probably the starting point because that's where, where the conversation builds from. Um, you know, with a lot of it, like there was, you know what was beyond just the the page so like you know i wrote the part for bruce Stern, and i was, I was super fortunate that he responded to it and jumped on board um but with that you know like what is on page versus like what is the backstory of that character is a whole different thing you know mm -hmm. and so i think <clears throat> with actors that they they i they're you know incredibly tactile thinking visceral emotional people that they don't want to just have everything worked out on paper for them, but they want to be able to work some of this stuff out with you. 
um, you know, meaning like that you're not afraid to go to a place where, where you're going to be honest and say like, man, I, I think that's not the correct way to play this character. Or I, I think perhaps this backstory is a little bit different. And, uh, you know, in writing it and just in further conversations, I, I wasn't uh, afraid to just continue to develop it, you know, like to the point that it, it's a lot more than what was on paper. And, and that's kind of the great gift of, of directing and, and directing such amazingly talented people is that uh, it becomes an ongoing dialogue and fusion process together. So is any of that um, non-script stuff, do you have a big treatment that you pass out as well? Or is it just a conversation you have with the actors about backstory and some of those things? It's, I, I mean, it basically starts with the script and then everything else was, yeah, I, I guess technically off script. You know, it's just yes. kind of improvisational a little bit, but, you know, a lot, a lot of decisions that get made along the way, you know, and I mean, honestly, it's like probably the stuff you're talking about and what you're reading and, you know, the conversations you have while you're making it also informs a lot along the way, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you have any like personal difficulties kind of switching from writer to director? Like, are you able to be less precious once you're, you're in that schedule and you've got to get everything done a certain amount of time? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a super uh, important question because, you know, when you're in the, the guts of shooting a movie it has a lot to do with the architecture. How are we going to achieve these days? The schedule, you're you know, limited to like whatever, 30, 30 to 35 days to shoot the thing but you're still rewriting sometimes, you know, like, so uh, for the last couple roles, uh, I was rewriting along the way. And uh, I don't find it easy to switch hats at that point to do additional writing just because the demands are, are, they're pretty bonkers, you know, and like you're jumping into a car to go look at a housing project you might shoot in, and then you're going to a wardrobe meeting and you're sitting down with actors. And so we did have to cast a little bit throughout the film and I had to make adjustments. And I, that's, that's tricky just because I, I tend to write at a point where I'm a little bit more calm rather than frantic, you know? So it's like you're, you're writing things on post-it notes at that point and hoping to plug it back into your computer in time to jam the pages after everyone. Are there any points as a director where you get to something you haven't really done before? And if so, how do you kind of start to tackle that? Are you talking to your cinematographer? Are you looking at, you know, other videos or how do you kind of do some of those, maybe action scenes or something like that? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I've learned along the way, it's not a bad thing to ask for help and just know that you can like fall back and rest on the shoulders of other people, you know, and like, uh, I'm, I'm real lucky because my, my friend Brian Newman shot this movie and, and we actually just to bring this all full circle, started shooting stuff in like the late 90s together. So we've been all over the place doing this type of stuff. And, you know, there are moments where you just get dizzy. You just don't, you, you don't have the physical energy or you're confused. You need a step away just because, you know, film sets are, are rather chaotic places. Uh, so I would say Brian has a huge pair of shoulders. So I'm always happy to like step aside and just like, you know, let him navigate through the action stuff specifically. We, we map that out like crazy, but, you know, when it comes down to doing it, it's, I kind of, uh, as Werner Herzog says, an exercise in extreme athleticism. So <laughs> there's a lot of running around, a lot of heavy, heavy equipment to be working with. So you kind of had this uh, background in commercials and shorts before you made Acne. If you could kind of go back and give yourself any advice before this movie or before that movie, what might that be? Uh, Agony is a very particular one. Agony was uh, just to be have fun with the pun it was an agonizing experience to make because I, I produced it as well and the financing was super complicated uh, the timing of everything was not uh, the way i would have liked it to play out um 
so we, we kind of let that one become a sleeper for now with, uh, with this one, I think the only advice, uh, is, you know, just to be as prepared for any moment and anything that comes up and just to be as sharp as possible in terms of allocating your time and, and your resources to, to make it the best movie possible. You know, um, I was real lucky because the, the cast truly made my life so much easier and it was, it was so much fun to make this movie. You know, and it was just because of the, the people involved. Is there any specific examples of uh, known character changes once you brought on these actors? Like, I kind of pictured this guy this way or this oh. woman this way, but she changed or he changed because of the actor? Uh, totally. I mean, uh, you know, that's yet again a, a great question because they talk about stunt casting or typecasting. And, you know, I believe, you know, every director ultimately is very similar to like a, a symphony conductor in the sense like you're only as great as your instrumentalists and your musicians and so you know it's not like you're some magician with a magic wand it, when it all comes together it's because there's really highly calibrated performers and craftspeople all working you know uh, synonymously uh, with the character of Mike who's played by, by Zach Avery he he came into this project with a very specific uh, skill set and, and knowledge of how he wanted to play the character. Um, but, you know, it didn't really always jive with the tone that we were going for. So th there was more with, with his character, but it was harder to express just, you know, in terms of he, he's a very physical big guy. So it's like he didn't uh, really mesh at all times with some of the stuff we intended to do. And so what, what I call uh, that process was, was addition by subtraction. We just had to chip away a little bit more complexity on what was on paper because it, it was apparent you couldn't quite get there and watching it, but he becomes a much more complicated character by showing less of that stuff. Hmm. Did anything surprise you about the script, maybe in like table readings or that type of thing? Once you heard it out loud, was there anything different about your story or hidden themes, things like that? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you uh, hearing it for the first time, and especially interpretor or interpretation points from actors, uh, I mean, you, you have to almost readjust tons of stuff, like, you know, more so in dramatic scenes, like dialogue. Dialogue can just be overwritten on paper, and then you say, like, damn, I got to cut a sentence here and then. That, that goes all the way through into the editing. I mean, it, it's crazy. Like, I think we shaved, call it 10 minutes out of the movie, and we, we never cut a scene. We cut dialogue basically, you know, just sharpen stuff up and, and just kind of continue to just readjust, you know, so that, that, that's, that's a big lesson moving forward, you know, it's just kind of how precise to be on paper versus overwriting and so on and so forth. Do you sort of like having that though, that when you get in the editing room, you've got more than less? I mean, I guess that would be better that way, right? Yeah, but it, it, it's very hard to kill your babies along the way, as they <laughs> say. So I, you know, I was grateful. The, the editor I worked with, there's a gal named Susie Almager and, and she started working with uh, the later phase of Robert Altman. So she, she's actually has a real great uh, history of working, you know, with, I don't want to say unscripted, but really complex improvisational mm. movies in the sense like, you know, the first cuts for some of these films were coming in six hours for a two and a half, three hour movie. So to be able to whittle through that information and uh, that's a big part of the process, I think as a, a storyteller, a filmmaker, you can't be afraid to let go and, you know, trust in the wisdom of how other people can guide you through all this, you know, mm -hmm. like you definitely have your real uh, conceits and you want to stick to your guns, but it, it gets very hard in the moment 
to, to really see what the whole picture is, especially after coming out and shooting it. Um, if you had two years to do it, it would be a whole different thing. But, you know, movies have to get edited in a time period. And uh, they sometimes say that, you know, movies are not so much finished as just abandoned. Tell me a little about the logistics of the writing. So I see you've got uh, a couple names on the screenplay. Did you guys all work together? Did you get, uh, how was that? How did this kind of, how come to be? So, you know, I, I actually never met the original writer. His name is Alex. He, um, he'd written the script and the producer, who's an old friend, actually had uh, uh, optioned and bought the, the script from him. And when I first saw the script, uh, my, my friend Andrew Levitas, who, who runs the company, called me and he said, Look, I have what I believe is like a great building block for a really solid film. Um, it's kind of like a straightforward enough, you know, inner city genre piece, crime thriller. Um, if you can dig in, go to work and get it someplace we're happy with, you know, we're, we're good to go because he had, you know, all the, the financing in place. So ultimately, I spent about three months just basically building off of Alex's script, gutting it. And, you know, like I added the Frank Grillo character who's in the movie. Uh, just kind of redesigning a lot of the attributes of, you know, what the, the story was. And I kind of re rewrote like, most of the dialogue. So, you know, in that, ultimately, it was totally based upon Alex's script because he, he, he delivered something that was great and very uniform um, in terms of it was a standalone, solid, like, thriller. Uh, but for me to actually dig in and understand, I, I just needed to see my point of view in that, you know. I was to say, is that the main difference you think is like adding your personal spin on things and then, or was it like a bigger change towards like marketability? How are you kind of thinking about some of those things as well? Yeah, to be honest, like uh, I, I, I'm probably as marketable as an old shoe when I think about things. It's funny because I, I spend a lot of time in advertising, so I, I am aware of that stuff, but I, you know, I got to throw that away when I go to work because it's got to be interesting to me. I've got... And I'm at a point in my life, it's like, I want to be true to what I want to say in the sense that, you know, I'm not looking to make friends when I do this kind of stuff per se, even though I feel like I've walked away with a lot of friends in the process of doing it and creating it. But, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta say what your point of view is in, in, in telling stories. I think that's kind of the mandate of somebody who, who's an artist at this point in time. You definitely saw something in Alex's story for, for maybe some of the other uh, screenplays you've read over the time. Mm -hmm. What what stands out as like a really good screenplay? Is there something that is there a common problem people do or what, what is it about the, those that rise to the top? I mean, uh, screenplays, you know, they're tools to tell stories. So I think ultimately uh, it depends on how complex they get. There, there's so many layers into what makes a great movie. You know, like uh, it, some can be more strictly based on the story. Like obviously someone like Chinatown, the Robert Town script you know, comes to mind or Citizen Kane. I mean, on paper, those are brilliant dynamic pieces of, of writing, um, certainly elevated and brought to a whole other level by you know, brilliant, brilliant minds along the way. Uh, I think you know, it really, honestly, dude, it has so much to do with genre specifications also, because like science fiction would be a good example. It's like something like Altered Carbon, which is an amazing science fiction book and became a really, really interesting Netflix show. I mean, that's an example of great writing, you know, and like some people have the ability to, to write that way. And if you can find that kind of stuff, it's, it's mesmerizing, you know. As a director, is there anything you hate to see on a spec script? Like if it says camera angles or stuff like that, is there, what kind of are your peeves and that type of thing? 
you, you know what I hate is parentheticals because I, I think parentheticals are great because you want to express yourself as a writer, um, but they're indicative or they're indicators, which is what I think uh, basically every actor would despise seeing on paper. And uh, I've learned that over time as a director is unfair to hoist on people, meaning like uh, the line is being said sadly or crying and uh, you know, I've, I've heard examples of really great actors basically being told that by directors, oh, please do this a little bit more sad. And, uh, they pick up a, a plate and like, is this sad enough? And they throw it against the wall. Like, I'll show you what sad really looks like. Now let's go do it again. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a bad thing. It's just like you have to uh, trust that everyone's going to bring their own understanding of truth to what they do. You know? Is there yeah. any other, you've given a lot of great advice already. Just any other advice for novice filmmakers trying to break in today? You know, I, I think the most important thing is your your community of people you work with are going to be the people who are going to have your back if you can make the right relationships. Uh, you know, like I was saying, the, the cinematographer and I, we, we've been working together since we were basically 20 years old. Um, and I've watched a lot of my friends go on and do really exciting things as writers, directors and stuff over the years. And I think going through time with, with people really makes a difference because, you know, it's, it's a long-term marathon race making movies and eventually becomes a lifestyle. And it's not the easiest road, but, you know, it's about tenacity. You know, you got to stick in that ring. I always say if you're, you can stand uh, long enough, you will ultimately be not only a contender, but a, but a champ if you just stay in that ring long enough. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.